you. Let's uh, let's begin as we uh, normally do. Did uh, anyone not get a handout? Got eight pages back there on the table. begin by uh, reading together the uh, first starting with the Apostles' Creed, which is the uh, very brief words in bold. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And now the Nicene Creed, which is the whole thing. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. All right, so we are still talking about the Holy Spirit this morning. Um, This is uh, part two of what I think will be a three-part series on the Holy Spirit. So we have one more next week. Um, And last week what we did is we talked about the Spirit's personality, who the Spirit is. Um, And we dealt with much of what the Creed has to say, which is predominantly about his person and his deity. That's because they were dealing with heresies, and so they had to address those heresies and and state what orthodoxy is. But most of us, honestly, are a lot more interested in not who the Spirit is, although that's important, but what he does, right? What his activity is. And I'm, I'm no different. This It's more interesting to me to think about what the Spirit does, his activity in the world, than these questions of the 4th century about the, the about the nature of his deity and so forth. And so we're going to actually get into that this morning. What is the Spirit's activity? What is his role in the world? What kind of effects does he have on us? And uh, what kind of relationship can we have with the Holy Spirit? These are really important questions, and I can't get to them all this morning, so next week will be the Spirit in the church and the Spirit in the individual Christian. So we'll talk about uh, how we can have a relationship with the Spirit, how we can get the Spirit, how we can lose the Spirit, how the Spirit's presence can increase or decrease in us, and how that impacts our salvation. So really, really, really important matters, but most of that will be next week. This morning I want to do something a little more basic than that. Um, Now I have to say that, I was telling Jim before we started, there is so much I would love to talk about the Holy Spirit. It's one of the biggest doctrines of the Bible. They're not the biggest, but it's one of the, 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 the most extensive things in all of theology. In fact, we call this pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It intersects almost every other area of theology. If you're studying Christ, you're going to end up talking about the Spirit. If you study the church, you're going to end up talking about the Spirit. If you study the end times, if you study the Christian life, if you study the creation, just about everything you can study... Somehow you're going to find the Holy Spirit, and usually right very close to the very middle of it. Um, so this is, and there's no way we can do this subject justice in just two weeks. So I'm going to be very selective. So I've selected this morning to talk about two things, and um, we're going to use the creed to guide us um, as to what we're going to talk about. Um, what are the? There's two places in the creed. Where amongst all of that verbiage about who the Spirit is and his deity, 
There's two places in the creed where it actually gives us a hint about what he does. And again, it's just a hint. There's so much more that he does that the creed doesn't tell us. But what, what is the one historical event that the creed mentions? He spoke through the prophets, right? Now, of all the things that it could have said about the Holy Spirit's activity, this is the one thing the creed tells us. Um, and actually, there there were many creeds uh, prior to kind of its, their consolidation into this one. And if you go back and look at the church's ancient creeds, you'll find that if they ever said anything more about the Spirit other than, I believe in the Spirit, they actually expand on that. This is usually what they said. Sometimes it was all they said, that he is the one who spoke through the prophets. Sometimes they'll say through the law and the prophets, the one who spoke in, in the Old Testament. Now, why is this important, that the Spirit spoke through the prophets? That's kind of, it seems kind of self-evident to us. How is that interesting? Well, it's because that today we buy Bibles like this, without the duct tape. Right? In one volume, we have bound together both Old Testament and New Testament, as if it were one book. And this is what the way that we all know our Bibles today. But in the beginning, it was not so. In the beginning, to associate the body of Christian literature coming from the apostles with the holy scriptures, the sacred scriptures that Jews everywhere recognized, which we today call the Old Testament, was a bold and daring thing to do, and it was controversial. It amounted to the claim that Christianity, this part, was not a new religion, but was in fact the same religion as that of Abraham and Moses David and the prophets. And the earliest theologians and apologists who wrote in defense of Christianity said this over and over. This was one of the things they were very eager to say, both to pagans as well as to unbelieving Jews. Christianity is not the new kid on the block. We're not a novel thing that has just come on the scene. We're actually as old as Abraham or even Noah or even Adam. This was something that Christian apologists made a point of asserting over and over again. And they can say this because of the belief that both Old and New Testaments come from the same author. And there are many human authors spread across many, many centuries. But one divine author, and you cannot divide him. He is one. He is one spirit. And so by saying that the spirit whom we now possess in the church, the spirit who it is that, 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 that was poured out by Jesus upon the church at Pentecost, to say that he is the one who spoke through the prophets of the Old Testament, is to say that the church is the continuation in a new state of being of that old community of Israel. And that her faith, Christianity, far from contradicting the Hebrew faith, is actually the fulfillment of it. The religion of the Old Testament given to the Jews is sort of like a caterpillar. The New Testament is like a butterfly. It's the same being, it's the same entity, the same creature, the same individual. 
but in vastly different states of being or condition. One is embryonic and preparatory. The other is mature and final, although there's actually a greater maturity and finality that's still future, but that ruins my analogy. Christianity is not a new religion born in 29 AD. It's the religion of the old come into its intended fullness, the fullness it was always meant to have. It's often been said that the old is pregnant with the new. It's tending toward the new. It's yearning, reaching for the new, and always has and always had been. That the spirit who bears witness to Christ through the prophets doesn't mean just that the Old and New Testaments are one Bible. It also means that if the Spirit witnesses to Christ, right, and that's what the apostles knew the Spirit to do, and the Spirit spoke to the prophets, then what can we expect to find in the prophets? The Spirit's speaking through the prophets, and he's witnessing to Christ, so, yeah, we can expect to find Christ in the prophets, because it was authored by the one who speaks about Christ. That's what he does. And so when Christians read the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms and the Prophets, we read it with Christian eyes. Now that's not something that's popular in academia. If you try this in the realm of scholarship, you will be belittled as an ignoramus. (laughs) But this is the Christian way of reading the Old Testament. The story of Jesus wasn't out of the blue. Most of its major events, many of its minor events, were predicted by the Spirit, through the prophets, centuries before. We find Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament. We even find the church, obscurely, okay, but present in parts of the Old Testament. We find new covenant realities concealed, not on the surface, but present in Old Testament texts because it's all being inspired by the Spirit who is who is pushing toward Christ in the New Covenant. And that's why that they are bound together today in a single volume. It's because they're telling the same story about the same Christ. And they're inspired by one and the same Spirit. And that's what the, these early creeds and eventually the Nicene Creed is essentially saying when it says that the spirit that we Christians talk about was the very one who spoke through the prophets of the Old Testament. Same religion. But what else does this phrase, who spoke through the prophets, tell us? It tells us something else about the spirit. I guess my outlines are kind of cheap. They kind of give it away. So if the spirit, if the one thing the creed tells us about the spirit is that he spoke, what that helps us to understand is that the spirit is the spirit of truth. The enemy of our souls, the usurper of God's kingdom in this world, is a liar, Jesus said. In fact, he is the father of lies. That's what he does. He lies. Um, falsehood, uh, untruth, is the weapon that he wields against us. The Bible also, I think in the book of James, speaks of the spirit of error that's in the world. Um, In the Old Testament historical books, you read about a lying spirit who speaks in the mouth of false prophets. 
So there is a lying spirit, a spirit of error, of falsehood, that is present in our world. And we shouldn't just think about soothsayers and astrologers and palm readers as false prophets, though they clearly are. But we should think more broadly. Think also about pundits and experts and smooth-talking TV preachers and philosophers and psychologists and musicians who write lyrics and filmmakers and marketers who are communicating to our culture messages which very often imbibe the spirit of error. The spirit of error is present in the very shapers of our culture telling us how to think and how to live in ways that actually move us further and further away from God. But God has not left us without a witness of his own. He has placed among us another spirit, his own, which is the spirit of truth. And this is a voice that combats the lies, that unmasks the untruths, that opposes false prophets with prophets of his own, who call us to repentance and to change our way of life and to come back to God. But it's not just limited to prophecy. That's not the only way the Spirit speaks truth. The Spirit is, in fact, the source of all divine truth that gets to us. All revelation, in every form, every kind of divine self-disclosure comes to us through the Spirit. If you were talking about the knowledge of God that's written on the stars, upon the things he's made, upon creation, it was the Spirit in perfecting creation who wrote it there. If we're talking about the voice of conscience that's in all men, that whispering of truth about what's right and wrong that we can't quite completely get rid of, although it's often dim and often unheard and of little effect, that is the edges of the Spirit's presence everywhere in all things still having an effect. Did you know that? That the conscience is actually the activity of the Spirit of God who is the Spirit of truth who is not far from each one of us. Even in a faint way, often an unheard way, to unbelievers. In the Old Testament, the Spirit is called the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding and knowledge and counsel. He's the interpreter of dreams and solver of riddles in the book of Daniel. It was through the Spirit that the law was given to Israel, one of the prophets says. It was the Spirit who spoke in the former prophets, like Nathan, who goes to David and rebukes him, and in the latter prophets, whose writings we have today. It was the Spirit who foretold the coming of the Messiah, who preached the gospel beforehand, preparing Israel for it. And when the Messiah came, it was the Spirit who anointed Jesus in his baptism and was with him in power as Jesus went about preaching truth to the crowds and teaching his disciples. Now that was the word of God himself, revealing the truth of God, but he was also a man in the power of the Holy Spirit speaking the truth, before it is the spirit of truth that he was full of. Jesus said that when he was gone, the spirit would come and would teach the disciples. So he's our teacher. That he would lead the disciples that he would bring to their remembrance everything that he had taught. 
He also said the Spirit would do something in the world at large. As the church goes out and preaches the gospel, the message concerning Jesus, the Spirit would convince or convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And when you look at Jesus' explanation of those three things, you realize what he's talking about is his story. He's talking about the gospel, the story of Christ. And when the church proclaims this message, it comes with a compelling force, a kind of inherent light of self evident truth that doesn't need the world's kind of proofs. That's the activity of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gifted the church with gifts of truth-telling. Notice how much of of those extraordinary gifts, or what we call the charismata, are truth-telling gifts. The gift of prophecy, a word of knowledge, even the gift of tongues, which communicates to others present without language barriers the truth about God. The Spirit gave utterance to martyrs and confessors in their moment of trial. And remember he says, you don't plan what you think, what you're going to say in that moment, because the Spirit will give you those words. So that they would speak the truth boldly and confess that Jesus is Lord. He inspired the writers of the New Testament, just as he had the prophets of the old, so that what they wrote is the Word of God. And it was in the Spirit that John and the island of Patmos received the revelation in the book of John, the book of Revelation. So the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And still today, we rely entirely on the Holy Spirit for truth. We rely on Him to illuminate us, to guard us from error, to give a compelling power to our proclamation of truth. Our pastors don't preach sermons, and I don't teach Sunday school relying on our cleverness, our you know, ability to put things together. We repeatedly find ourselves on our knees asking the Holy Spirit to be with our study, our preparation, our thoughts, the formation of our words, because that is our, the only hope we have that I'm not wasting your time right now. Because I have nothing to offer you. The Holy Spirit does. He's the spirit of truth that we most desperately need. And we all need to develop this habit, and I need to develop far more than I have, of more constantly, more regularly, intentionally asking the Holy Spirit to be present in all our decisions. In all aspects of our life, because we need God's truth, not our own. God's truth in every decision we make, in every conversation we have. The Spirit will combat error that's lodged in our souls. He will press against the error that's still seeking to seep into, to leak into us from the culture around us. That's an ever-present struggle. But we have the Spirit of God. And if we progress in receiving His truth, He will even use us as instruments of light to shine in the darkness of the culture around us. (coughs) So he is the spirit of truth, and we desperately, desperately need him. So that's one, the one role of the spirit that the creed explicitly points to. But there is another one, and this one is actually, in my opinion, even more glorious. It's, it's so glorious, I can't even figure out how to put it into words well. So this next part's going to be kind of a mess, <laughs> because it's so good. All right. It's found in the little phrase, giver of life. 
The Spirit is the giver of life. Now, this comes from the Bible. In fact, all the phrases about the Spirit come straight out of Scripture. That was what they were trying to pacify the, uh, a lot of the people in the East who were upset about non-scriptural words in the Creed. And so they made sure that everything about the Holy Spirit came straight out of Scripture. But they still chose what they put in there, because there's a lot in Scripture. And this was significant. The giver of life. Where does life come from? I mean all kinds of life. All life. Spiritual and physical. From God himself through spirit. In fact, the spirit is the source of all life that the creature enjoys. He imparts youthfulness, vigor, vitality, strength. Not just spiritually, but physically as well. Even if that means, as it did in the days of the judges of old, physical strength in battle to defeat the enemies. The spirit is also the ground and support of all fertility and fecundity and fruitfulness of the creature in its own propagation of life, in which the creature gets to participate with the spirit in bringing forth new life. But it's still the spirit from whence that life comes. We, the the book of Psalms, tell us we're fashioned in our mother's wombs, not only by chemical processes, but we're ordered, knit together, shaped, adorned, fitted, and prepared by the Spirit of God, governing and empowering and using those processes as his instrument. It's the Spirit who plays that instrument and creates the music that is a new, living human being. And of course he's the source of our spiritual life. We'll talk more about that next week. And in the resurrection, it will be the spirit who dwells in our members who will raise our bodies from the dead. So he is the giver of life. But he's not only the giver of life. That's not the only thing the spirit gives. The Bible also tells us that he's the giver of holiness. Or he is the sanctifier. Or even, the Greeks would say, the deifier of the creature. And this is hinted at in his very name. What do we call him? He's the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't just mean that he's personally holy, and of course he is. Uh, That does contrast him with evil spirits or unclean spirits. He's the Holy Spirit, so there's a contrast there. But that's not all it means. It also means that he's the very fountain of holiness. The source of holiness for everything else. He is the very well from which all creatures drink and by so doing become participators in his holiness. You see, our holiness is not our own. It's not something we possess as if it belonged to us by ourselves. It's actually the Spirit's holiness that he shares with us. Even the angels get their holiness from their participation in the Spirit. His presence within man shaped us in God's own image and likeness. And when that likeness was lost by sin and that image was distorted, though not lost, he goes about cleansing us from sin, reshaping and restoring that distorted image and restoring our divine likeness so that we are holy as God is holy. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. The Bible also teaches that he is the source of the creature's wisdom. 
What is wisdom? Our middle schoolers have been learning about wisdom all year long. I hope they're not tired of it. They've been in the book of Proverbs since uh, September. Wisdom is about making right choices and and ordering the steps of one's life in a way that will lead to blessedness and the fulfillment of our purpose. It is understanding and discernment by which we're able to use our divine faculty of free choice to choose well between good and evil. In the Bible, wisdom is also skill. It's creativity. It's art. It's good government. It is, in fact, the human soul operating at its highest level, where it's most noble, where it's most godlike. For we are, the book of Psalms say, little gods made to do his work. And when we operate out of wisdom, we are doing what God made humans to do. Where did we get that? It's from the Spirit. It was the Spirit who came on the elders of Israel and enabled them to govern this vast people. It was the Spirit who came on the craftsmen. What were their names? Azalel and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> when they craft, yeah, it's a crazy name, right? Well, they needed to craft the furniture of the tabernacle, which had spiritual significance, and so they needed, let me look it up. And so, <laughs> they needed skill, and they needed to be able to create something beautiful, and the Spirit of God was put upon them to do that. The Spirit came upon Solomon so that he can judge wisely. In fact, the earliest theologians in the first couple of centuries would say that they called the Son the Word of God. That They actually referred to him as the Word more often than they did the Son. But they called the Spirit the wisdom of God. Later theologians would use both terms for the Son. But the earliest ones would use the term wisdom of God to refer to the Spirit. And I think that's probably pretty good, pretty accurate. We could keep going about the things the Spirit gives us because his works are manifold. There are many. But there's one more that I want to mention, and that is that from the Spirit comes beauty. Beauty in classical philosophy is about a thing being rightly ordered in all its parts to its proper end. It's about proportion and harmony and order and things being in their right place. This too, wherever it is found, both spiritually and physically, comes from the Spirit. In the beginning, the Spirit hovered over the chaotic waters, and out of it he brought order. In the days ahead, we see order and distinction. Things are put in their proper places. Light and darkness are separated, land and sea, sky above He's distinguishing, he's setting boundaries, he's putting everything in its proper place and role and function. And what emerged was a world that was truly beautiful. It's the spirit who gave the world its beauty. He also rightly orders the soul, the various faculties of the soul, and makes it spiritually beautiful. He orders human society and family life. Ordering and distinguishing and putting everything in its proper place and proper role and makes it socially and domestically beautiful. He orders the processes of nature. The spirit sustains the laws of nature. 
That's what the laws of nature are. It's the spirit sustaining the natural order in its orderliness. And it brings forth natural beauty. Well, many other things come to us from the spirit, but those four will have to suffice for now. And they're enough to help us to realize that the spirit plays an indispensable role in creation. First few lessons in this class, we talked about the father as creator. And when we came to the son, we mentioned that all things were made through the son. But now... We're going to say that the Spirit himself was indispensable in the work of creation. Church fathers often spoke of it this way. They would say that the Father willed creation. The Son brought it into being. He conferred bodily existence on it. And the Spirit arranged and perfected and completed it. You could think of this as the Father planning a work of art. The Son sketches the outline now. And the spirit colors it in. Alright, maybe that's not the best analogy. How about the father designing a house? He's the architect. He's got the plan. The son builds the house. He's the builder. The spirit furnishes it and decorates it and turns it into a home. Or you can think of the temple. David planned the temple. But his son Solomon built it. But it wasn't yet a temple until the divine presence fell upon it and filled it with holiness on the day of its dedication. That was sort of like Pentecost. The Spirit completes or perfects what the Father begins and the Son carries out. But how does he complete the creature? How does the Spirit complete or perfect the creation? How does he give us life and holiness and wisdom and beauty so that the creation is rendered good. Are these just features that he designed into us? Is this just our programming? Or are they an innate part, an inalienable part of who we are or what we are? Or is there something more intimate going on? In order to understand this, and we're just going to dip our toe into a vast and deep well here. And I'm going to be very brief, but just to tantalize, to yeah, be tantalizing here. We need to return again to his name. He's the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Why spirit? The whole divine nature is spirit. We can say the Father is spirit, the Son is spirit, and their divine nature. There's something about the third person of the Trinity, about his way of acting, his role in the world that makes this image more especially applicable. Now, spirit does not mean bodiless. Bodily left. Bodiless. Yes, bodiless. It does not mean invisible. That's sometimes the way you use it today. Oh, that was just a a spirit. That means it was a ghost. It wasn't something real or physical. That is not actually what the word spirit means. In the original languages, spirit conveys the notion of breath or wind in motion. It's not stale air. It's energy. It's power. Force. Movement. Even at times, violence. It's something you cannot see, but which has enormous influence and impact on what you can't see. It is God in motion within his creation. Furthermore, if you look at the metaphors or images the Bible used to refer to the Spirit, they're things like fire 
and water and air and breath and wind. These are things which have no definite shape or bounds. They're things that flow into and permeate everything and and anything around them. It conveys the notion of an invading presence, a deep, irresistible expansion. It's not just God in motion. It's God invading, infusing, and mingling with creation. Now, this does not collapse the creator-creature distinction. That is never erased in anything that I'm saying this morning. That line always exists. But what it does mean is that the creator is imminent or radically present to his creatures. Now, there are various degrees and kinds and levels of presence. That's important for us to understand. There is a sense in which the Holy Spirit is present to all creation, even inanimate things. He has activity that impacts and influences all things. He's the very ground of their being. But there is a greater sense in which he is present to living things. There's a greater activity and influence that produces that life and sustains it. There's an even greater sense in which he is present to rational reasoning creatures. That's men and angels. And among men, he is most present to the saints in a very unique, special way that he's not present to others. But even there, there are levels or degrees of presence even within the saints from one saint to the next. More on that next week. The Church Fathers believe that the Spirit completes creation not by programming it, not like you know the Promethean fire where you, you know, the gods give something to man and now it belongs to man, he's got it. It's not like the artist who colors the picture with a paintbrush and then walks away, so that analogy wasn't actually very good. The Spirit completes the creature by joining himself to it. He is God's life. He is God's holiness. He is wisdom and beauty. And where he is present to the creature and joined to it, those divine attributes that are proper to God become properties that are shared with the creature. The creation was never meant to be off on its own, gifted with its own inherent goodness, even if it did come from God originally. The creature, was de- the creature, and by creature I mostly mean man, was designed to be always dependent for its goodness on God. It was designed from the beginning to be indwelt and possessed and permeated and governed by the Holy Spirit who orders and completes the creature with his own presence. So the Spirit doesn't merely give us life. He is our life. His activity in us is what life is, both physical and spiritual. Not just in the beginning, but through a continuing creative act of life-giving for all time and eternity. The Spirit doesn't merely bestow holiness upon us, like, you know, zapping us. He is our holiness. Which means that we possess life and holiness and wisdom and beauty only to the degree that the Spirit is joined to our soul, to the degree that we have His presence with us. Ultimately, what the Spirit is doing 
is uniting our operations to God's. He is making us godlike, equipping us to do the works of God and to reflect the character of God. He's making us into sons who look like our Father and do what Father does. Greek theologians call him the deifier. Again, that doesn't erase the distinction between the creature and the creator. We're not going to be God as God is God. But there is a sense that the Bible says that we are being made gods, small g, like God in an ineffable, almost unimaginable way. So close and intimate is this joining of the creator and his creature. The Spirit's work is to raise the creature, or rather one creature, man, up to a new condition of being human. This isn't being something other than human. This is being fully and authentically human. This was the design for humanity, the blueprint, that architectural print that God had in mind from the beginning. Not a humanity off on its own, but a humanity in union with him who lives by the life of God himself, not his own. Who glows with the holiness of God, not his own holiness who discerns and wills by the wisdom of God, not its own, and who is rightly ordered with the beauty of God, not its own. So, earnestly desire the Spirit. He and He alone will complete you, will make you what you were meant to be. He makes us more authentically and truly human. So next time we say the words, we believe in the Holy Spirit, say them with love and affection, and with longing in our hearts for more and more of his presence. In the Father. Amen. Alright, we have a big group this morning, so let's do two adult groups.